My name is Jen Buchholz. I'm a forensics and criminal justice professor at American Military University, an Army veteran, and a criminal investigator for my local sheriff's department. I'm George Jarrett. I'm an investigative journalist and award-winning true crime author. Together, George and I are the lead investigators for AMU's cold case investigative team. This season, we're working to break the case for the family of Linda Malcolm. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. The weapon that was used wasn't anything super special. I think it was probably something like a kitchen knife of some sort. Most kitchen knives don't have a hilt, which is what would protect your hand from sliding down the blade of a knife. That's very correct. And it would be pretty common to get a cut on your own hand if you stab someone and hit a bone. I think she definitely put up a pretty good defense. My father-in-law, Jerry, was a volunteer firefighter for over 20 years. He attended countless fires, helping to extinguish them and investigate the cause and origin. Many of them involved a human victim. When he recently came to town to visit me and my husband, I sat down with him and went through the photos from the crime scene at Linda's house. The following audio captured some of his very first thoughts and impressions. Jerry, what do you notice first about these pictures of Linda's house? This is burnt. It's like an accelerant. The inside of this house is extremely hot, but nothing burnt on the roof. That means whatever was inside of here burnt extremely hot and extremely fast. And it shows in all the photos. Mm -hmm. All this is burnt, charred up here. But you look where the window is, there's hardly anything. It didn't even start the roofing on fire. That roofing, if it was that hot burning that long, it should have been burnt up in there. But nothing up here is burnt. There's no signs of anything up on the roof. Up here where the door must have been opened, Mm -hmm. that's all burnt black. This should have been shown some black somewhere in here, especially out the vent. Yeah. There should have been something coming out the vent. And there's nothing. So this was her master bedroom. That burnt, so that means the inside of this house, see the gutter burnt Uh partway away? And that's the room where she was found. Yeah, that was very hot in there. See where it comes out through the window? Yeah. It melted that, and you can see up on the roof, and it's already starting to burn black. Mm -hmm. The rest of this isn't. This is the living room in here. Yeah, but I mean, look at the wall here. Everything around here is black. Up this wall is black. Like something was thrown on something. Gonna live on fire. This yeah. is part of her living room. Yeah, see? Up here, charred, but nothing there. It's, it's very strange. Is it just because the heat rises so quickly? Heat rises so fast, yeah. but it charred up the walls so fast, I'm taking a guess. Something lit it on fire. Looks like something was dumped in there someplace to get it, get it to start really going. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't put in one room. It was sprayed around everywhere. It's almost like somebody had five gallons of gas and just yeah. started throwing it up against the wall, and away you go. This is her bedroom. Look how bad that bed okay, is. So this was a water bed. 
Oh, that's a water bed? Yep. Okay. A reminder to listeners, Linda's body was discovered in the master bedroom. She was dead before the fire started. Oh, okay. She has no soot, no nothing in her trachea or lungs, so she was dead. Well, and I tend to think, since that's a room she's found in, at least part of their target of the fire would probably be that bedroom. Because whatever she had up here, half is burned off. Yeah. But the wall behind it isn't. You see everything can be here? Mm-hmm. It's not burnt. So whatever was burning on there had have been extremely, extremely hot. That car is totally destroyed. Do you think it's just happenstance from the house fire? Possible, but boy, the inside of that thing is just literally gone. There's nothing in it. That's true. Tires are burnt off. Mm-hmm. But the front end. Yeah, that part's okay. The inside just burnt completely. Even the windows have gone out of it. Mm-hmm. I think just because the, the contents of the interior of a vehicle will burn quicker than the body? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. The interior. But in order to get that to burn with the house on fire, if it just started by itself, that would have to mean that that, that house would have been just about engulfed in flames everywhere. You get that to be hot enough to create the inside of that car to burn you think maybe they lit a fire in the car? It's a good possibility. They might have lit it right there and let it go. Because that building would have to be just about totally destroyed for that vehicle to catch fire on the inside. Yeah, that's a good point. The seats are gone. Seats are gone. Everything around the steering wheel is gone. You can see the horn is gone on it. Everything's burnt off. So once that catches fire, this whole thing would have been gone. After Jerry had more time to process the crime scene photos and discuss them with me, we decided to sit down and record a more formal interview discussing his thoughts. Hey everyone, I'm here with my father-in-law, Jerry. Why don't you tell us about your background first? I spent 20 plus years in the fire department and I've seen arson fires, car fires, multiple fires, pretty much everything. Did you have to go through training or certification? We had a about a six-month course we had to go through mm-hmm. for arson and what to look for at a fire. Sure. So the other day, you and I went through the photos from Linda's crime scene. Correct. And you taught me a lot. <laughs> I learned so much from you, but... When you first started looking at the photos, what kind of stuck out to you most? Or what caught your attention first? The charness in certain areas and perfect in other areas. Mm -hmm. That tells me there was very intense heat in certain areas and no heat in other areas. And then what does that in turn indicate to you? I would say it was set with some type of accelerant Mm -hmm. to make it burn fast, rapid, and that's why you got such black charring in certain areas. And you can see there's wallpaper that's not even off the wall in other places. Mm-hmm. When you also pointed out the roof didn't really have any damage. No, you could see where the windows were blown out. 
and some charring up the wall, but a normal fire is going to burn upward as much as it can. It will take windows out, don't get me wrong. It will blow windows out, but most of the time it takes them out from heat. From what I understand, they heard three explosions. Mm -hmm. The neighbors of Linda's, yeah. Which is odd that you got three explosions. So what do you think could cause that? I can't say 100% sure, but to me it looks like some type of accelerant was put in there in different areas. There was more than one fire in that house at one time. Mm -hmm. And at least two of the windows that we were looking at in the photos, I mean, we could tell they're blown out, right? Because the frame and everything. The frame and everything is gone out of that window, so that tells you it was blown out of there. Yeah, it didn't just break. No, if it just broke, the frame would have still been there. Mm -hmm. And so then we were looking at photos of Linda's car, which I originally assumed just caught fire because it was parked next to the house. What did you see? <laughs> I thought it was kind of strange because the car burnt, but if there was electrical fire or heat from the building, it would have took that whole carport out before it would have took a window out of that car. I've been to places where people tried to burn their cars you don't realize that you can start the interior of a car on fire. But if you only have the window open just a crack, it's only gonna burn so long, and then you run out of oxygen to burn. Fire goes out. Mm -hmm. It has to have enough air to keep it burning. And the inside of that car is absolutely charred. I mean, there's nothing, even the plastic on the steering wheel is burnt off of it. Mm -hmm. The seats are gone. The rear view mirror, and all the windows are out of it too. Correct. Which are a little strange. Normally in a car fire, if it's electrical, the hood of this car is gonna be black too. Mm -hmm. Because all your power comes from the battery which is in the front of the vehicle. So it should have been charring someplace else. Yeah. And burnt. I mean, you look at the car, and even the front tires aren't burnt off. Yeah. They've got distortion from the heat from the building, but the interior of that car is absolutely fried. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing left to it. And the only way you could tell for sure is if you look at the car. You'd have to see where the windows melted out. Did they fall inside the vehicle or did they fall down the door? You'd have to go through all that to figure it out. Yeah. But the windows are completely gone, but they should be some trace of it in the in the car someplace tell you exactly did they fall inward okay so because that could help determine if the fire came from the outside of the car or was started inside from the inside of the car mm -hmm. the way that charred that car is that carport should have been gone mm -hmm. after you pointed all this stuff out to me and i'm no expert in this but it looks to me like a fire was started inside what it almost looks like to me. If that's true, that's probably a huge clue. Because why is this person going to the trouble to torch her car effectively? Because what you just described, it's not that easy, actually. No, it's not that easy to start a fire in a car. So something else that really interested me is there's some photos of the exterior of the house of basically along the bottom of the concrete pad. There's some black marks 
And I had thought, oh, that just must have been smoke that got pushed out through some hole or something from the floor above. But you explained, no, that's not what happens with no. smoke. No, smoke goes up. Heat goes up. In order to make that, in my opinion, would have to be something seeped underneath the building and started to burn. Mm -hmm. And you can see in that photo, the fire department sprayed foam there. It looks like something ran under the wall and started to burn. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise it should burn straight up. Yeah. So overall, your opinion is that whoever set this fire probably had some kind of accelerant and put it in more than one spot in the home. Yes, because you look at certain spots and certain of these pictures, one spot is really burnt. Even you go to the bedroom, the headboard is burnt just about in pieces, mm -hmm. but yet you look behind it and the wall is, yeah, it's charred, but it's not burnt like that headboard is burnt. Mm -hmm. So that says something was on that headboard, composite wood, it still wouldn't burn as hot. Mm -hmm. And it would still show up on the wall as being burnt. Uh -huh. That's just odd, stuck out to me that half of that headboard is just burnt right away. Yeah. And the other half is there, but it's charred really bad. Yeah. Just to clarify, that's in the master bedroom, and that's the bedroom where Linda's body was found, too. So to me, as an investigator, it makes sense to target that area for sure, because a fight went on between Linda and her killer, and the killer very well may have been injured and bleeding. And it appears most of this fight happened in the bedroom. So it would make sense to me that just That's torch it to get it rid of their is. own DNA. You're getting rid of all the evidence. Exactly, yeah. Because you're not going to find any blood when it's burnt that bad. Exactly, yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> you're more than welcome. For doing all this analysis for me and for George and our team and everybody who's listening to this. I really appreciate your insight. So it's been very helpful. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. In addition to Jerry, we had another arson expert who was eager to provide his thoughts and insight on Linda's case. Hey everyone, I'm joined today by a, I'm just gonna call him a new member of our investigative team because he's been so incredibly helpful on not just Linda's case, but on a couple others that we're kind of working on. So Alan Haskins is here with us today. And Alan, would you mind introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and your experience in terms of arson and firefighting and all of that? I'm Alan Haskins. I'm with Black River Technical College. I'm over the fire science program here. I teach firefighters how to be firefighters and current firefighters how to be better firefighters. I've been in a fire service since about 1987. I've got a couple of degrees, bachelor's in fire science, master's in emergency management with an emphasis on homeland security. Arson side, I've been teaching it for several years now. Basically every fire that a firefighter goes to has to be investigated. Once we find out that something is like an arson, then we go into the criminal side and we work with police and private investigators with like insurance companies. So what best helps you determine if a fire is a result of arson? One of the things that we teach in this field is not really to call it an arson investigation right off the bat. 
what we do is what's called a cause and origin. We've got to figure out where the fire started and why it started. While we're in the process of doing our cause and origin, if we find signs of arson, like gas cans or trailers, what I mean by trailers is where somebody's poured you know, fuel out on the ground or on the floor or something like that, is there some kind of an incendiary device, then we automatically then flip over to an arson investigation. So you'll hear it called a fire investigation more than you do arson. So today we're going to be discussing the case of Linda Malcolm, which listeners already know the basics of it. But just to review, Linda's body was found in the master bedroom of her home in Port Orchard, Washington, on April 30th, 2008. And the reason that she was discovered, I guess you could say, is because neighbors called 911 early that morning because her house was engulfed in flames. And thankfully, we've been able to obtain some photos of the exterior and interior of that home as it was seen by investigators after the fire was extinguished. And obviously, I've shared those photos with you, Alan, because they're going to help you a lot in your analysis. But what were your initial impressions of the scene when you first saw those photos? Well, without sounding like Captain Obvious, it for sure was a structure fire. And it went throughout the whole house. The neighbors woke up. They're the ones that called 911. I believe her husband went next door and he knew that she was home. Mm-hmm. He tried to get to her through the window. The window was shut. He broke it out and then went to the back door and kicked it in. And I think a lot of the fire spread that we've seen in that house was caused by that. Gotcha. And I'm not saying that that person done something wrong. That's just what a lay person's going to do that hasn't been trained. We even train firefighters to what we call compartmentalize the fire, you know, and shut down doors and shut down different things. And there's a tactic that we use. If we know where she was at, we can teach them to go in the window, go shut the door, do a quick search of that room and pull any victims out of that room by compartmentalizing that room away from the rest of the fire of the house. Mm-hmm. So looking at what I seen there and going by what, the report was that there was fire already coming out the front door. It tells me that probably whoever left there left out the front door and left it open. Oh. If the front door was open, fire is going to travel to a draft point where it can get air at. If the front door was open and the back door was shut, that makes sense to me. That does make sense. There was only two traditional entry points to the house. So the front door and then the back door, which led into the carport where Linda's car was parked. Right. So the person really only had two options of how to flee the home. And that's interesting about maybe leaving the front door open. I hadn't even thought about that. If they left the front door open, do you think that would just have been happenstance? Or do you think maybe that shows some level of knowledge of how fire works? It might have been just a happenstance. I think they poured fuel out to the front door and lit it from right there and just left it open. Okay. I think the whole thing from the the original assault to the fire, I think it was all just boom, 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 boom. I don't know that it was premeditated. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong. And I'll tell you guys straight up, if I'm wrong, I'll be the first to admit it. Oh, same here. (laughs) Hey, that's part of evolving through an investigation. We inevitably get things wrong. Yeah. I mean, when you develop a hypothesis, you got to test it. I think it started out as a fight or something along those lines. And then the murder occurred and then it just happened. Mm -hmm. I think they went out the front door. The fire looked for a vent path that went out that front door. Okay. 
So do you think an accelerant was used? Do you see evidence of that in the photos? I would say that it probably was. I would think that there would be some kind of an accelerant to have that much damage. We may never know the answer to this, but I've wondered if the murder occurred and the person left and then realized, oh man, you know, my DNA's in there or whatever. I better go back and light the fire. But of course, that just increases the level of risk returning to the scene. Right, right. But like you said, what could they find that was that flammable on site? I don't know. Right. There might have been some lawnmower gas on the front porch or something. There might have been a barbecue grill with lighter fluid there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we've been told, and this isn't fact, but what little we know right now is that there was a detached shed on the property. And supposedly that's where Linda kept the lawnmower and garden tools and gas for the lawnmower and stuff like that. But like you said, that doesn't mean there wasn't something more accessible at the house. Let's discuss the carbon monoxide level. So hers was at 9%. Yeah. And when I met with the coroner, he showed me the photos of her trachea and lungs, and they're clear of soot and anything else. So what does that tell you? Uh, She wasn't breathing when the smoke and carbon monoxide was heavy, for sure. So that tells me that the fire isn't what killed her. And you hear people say that, died in a house fire. Well, when you go to the cause and manner of death, they might have died in a house fire, but the cause of it was actually smoke inhalation. And I forgot the, the actual number, but it's above 95 to 98% of the people that die in a house fire don't die from the fire itself. They die from smoke inhalation first. Yes. So you're going to see soot. You're going to see carbon monoxide levels that are out the roof. You're going to see singed tongue, the throat, the inside of the mouth. So if none of that was there, that tells me that she was dead before the fire started. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a victim who does succumb to the heat and gases and stuff like that, their carbon monoxide level will be found more like in the 60 to 70% range? Yeah, maybe a little lower than that. I've seen them before in like a 53 range. And they'll look at the carboxyhemoglobin levels and see where it's at. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about the way carbon monoxide works on the molecular level of it, the way it's structured our blood cells at almost rather absorb it faster than it does oxygen. So if we run on the fire department side to a carbon monoxide call, a lot of times when they take those patients to the hospital, you know, those little monitors at the oxygen pulse ox monitors that they put on your finger, it'll read a hundred percent and it'll give a false reading on there that you've got a lot of oxygen in your blood, but it's actually carbon monoxide. So they actually have to do what's called a blood gas and pull that blood out and see what the carbon monoxide levels is in your hemoglobin. Wow. I had no idea about that. That's fascinating. That's how that works. So by her only having like 9%, that's down around the smoker's range. You'll see that in people that are smokers. I think she was at least socially. The fire department, I've got to give them credit. They've done an awesome job putting this thing out because her body wasn't burnt as bad as what I've seen. Yes. They got there pretty quick. They'd probably done an interior attack on it. Probably if they knew that there was somebody in there that they went inside pretty quick Mm -hmm. and they got it put out. That's pretty commendable to them. But unbeknownst to them, she was already gone before they got there. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure the neighbors that try to gain entry to try to save her informed the fire department as soon as they arrived that they thought she might be in there. So... 
the interior, I would say, was basically fully engulfed Mm -hmm. by the time the fire department got there. But the roof was essentially untouched. So how long do you think that fire burnt before firefighters arrived on the scene or before it was noticed by the neighbor? That's going to depend a lot on the building construction itself, the way it's built, how old the house is. The older houses seem to be built better and burn actually slower than what the newer ones do, believe it or not. The newer ones now are are built with cheaper, lighter weight material, and they'll burn through faster. These older ones have got thicker, more denser wood and products in them that will actually cause them to burn slower. So the fire department got there pretty quick from the time of the call and done a real aggressive interior attack and knocked it down real quick. I think it was about a three-minute response time, so they were there quickly. Yeah, that's good. The other thing, there was a newspaper delivery person who we're still looking for. So if you're listening and this was you, please reach out to me or George. But supposedly the newspaper delivery person for that neighborhood came by Linda's house and delivered her paper at 345 that morning and said they noticed nothing out of the ordinary. But by 358, the neighbors are calling 911. Yeah. So what do you think about that window of time? Is that doable? 13 minutes. Yeah, that's possible. Okay. Yeah, that's very possible. There's videos online of fire departments actually doing training on some houses. And one in particular is a two-story house, and they light it in the bottom, and it's completely on the ground in about 45 minutes. Wow. Okay. So 13 minutes, that's very doable. Okay. It could have been in the beginning phases of the fire, and they just didn't notice it whenever they go by. Yeah. When you think about it, if somebody's a newspaper delivery person, they're really not paying attention to... Yeah, you're not looking for that. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. And you mentioned the structure materials. So my father-in-law was a volunteer firefighter for many years, and he noticed that the siding was probably asbestos siding. Would that have any influence on how quickly the fire burned or spread or the intensity? It's going to for sure hold it inside by letting it breach through the walls like it would if it had... OSB and particle board and like a vinyl siding or something on it, they'd for sure go through that faster. But again, with those older homes, it takes longer for those to actually to burn through because the wood is more dense. Mm-hmm. And the car. So Linda's car was backed into her carport and it's a one car carport. It has a roof and two walls, but it has two walls because those are the walls of the house. The other two are wide open. There's no garage door or anything on it. We don't know if it was Linda's habit to back her car in. It could have been. She's former military. We're taught tactical parking in the military. Uh So that habit may have just continued. But that aside, the car is pretty charred on the majority of it. What do you think about what happened to the car? A note to listeners that Alan is about to disagree with my father-in-law about the burn pattern and cause of damage to Linda's car. George and I purposely kept these opposing viewpoints and analysis in the podcast because it helps everyone keep an open mind. I think just the radiant heat from the structure fire did it because it probably would have broken the windows out and let it get inside. That's where the most flammable parts of it is, is on the inside of the car. Mm -hmm. I've seen that happen before. We've had that happen a couple of times on burnt cars that was underneath the house that was fully involved. I think it just burnt from radiant heat from the house. And the radiant heat from the structure fire, would that would have been hot enough to break the windows of the car and then allow yeah. burning debris or flames or something to get inside. And Yeah, even the radiant heat would get the interior of the car hot enough that it would auto-ignite itself from the radiant heat. Okay. 
structure fires get really, really hot. Mm -hmm. I've been on fires before that we couldn't even get up close to the house. We had to fight our way into it to get to it because it was that hot. I bet. Yeah, I bet. The only reason I could think of that they would target the car is if, say, the person had cut themselves. Yeah. They're bleeding. For some reason, they're out in the car. They feel like, okay, well, I got to destroy that too. But I'm with you. That's a big extra level of risk. Yeah. And staying on site even longer and risking discovery. To be clear for listeners, the majority of murderers or killers, they grab the weapon and they flee and they never come back. It's not like the movies. So this is actually a rarity that this person stayed on site for these additional probably, I would say, at least a couple minutes, if not longer. Yeah. And just every second you stay there ups your risk of being discovered. Right. And... So when I look at the interior photos, it's hard for me to ascertain a whole lot because everything's basically black. But it does look to me like the bedroom furniture in her master bedroom and that area, mm-hmm. it looks more charred to me. Am I correct in seeing that? Or Yeah, it did me too. I mean, you think about it. If they're trying to get rid of any evidence, that's where they're going to start the fire at first, right? I would think. Uh-huh. If I've got a body in the back of the house, I'm not going to start it by the front door and then hope that it gets to the back and gets rid of everything. They're going to start it, you know, right close to where the body is. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably where it started at. And if it started there, it burnt there longer than it did anywhere else. Uh huh. So, And that makes sense because that's a room she's found in. So, Yeah, and if you look at the damage to her body, that's another thing that tells me that they got a quick attack on it because the fire damage, to her body wasn't just overly horrible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was bad. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not as bad as what I've seen before. Yeah, and actually the part of her body that was on the ground side yes. to the floor, it wasn't burnt really at all. I mean, her skin color looks completely normal. Right, right. And that's one of the reasons that it tells me that the fire department got there really quick and done a really good job of putting the thing out. Mm-hmm. So supposedly the bed in her bedroom was a waterbed. Yeah. Have you been to a fire before where there was a waterbed that, I don't know how they burst or if that's even the right word in a fire, but what happens with a waterbed in this situation? You can actually take a plastic water bottle and hold that above a fire and actually boil the water inside that plastic water bottle. Mm-hmm. So what happens is that heat goes in there and the water inside that waterbed absorb that heat. If you look, the Sheets and stuff like that are burnt real bad. The headboards burnt real bad. The walls are burnt real bad. But that mattress and stuff is still there. And even the boards around the sides of it are still there. To be clear, Linda's waterbed mattress was not intact when investigators processed the scene. There were remnants of it left, but there was no water in it. So that tells me that probably is what happened is that bed absorbed a lot of the heat in there too. Do you think that it did burst? Would it eventually give way and the water would come out of it? Yeah, eventually it would. Do you think that protected her body at all? It's possible that that thing absorbed a lot of the heat in that room and that that might have been preserve her body. Yeah. This is probably the first one I've ever worked that had a body with a waterbed. Okay. Waterbeds are just not not that common anymore. No, they're not. (laughs) Well, and it's possible. So she's stabbed on the bed at some point, the knife could have punctured that mattress before the fire was even started. Yeah. Obviously, we don't know where this entire altercation took place. 
So the photo of the living room, it appears that there's a bookcase of some sort or a shelving unit that's over on its side because you can see the back of the electronics like a VCR and cable box and stuff. And that led me to believe that part of this may have happened in that living room and they're fighting and going back and forth and bump into that shelving unit and it goes over. You know, that's possible, but it could also be from the fire department too doing their salvage and overhaul. That's true. They could have knocked it over Mm -hmm. by accident. I know sometimes fire departments and firefighters get a little rambunctious when they're doing that kind of stuff. Sure. They knock things over on accident or sure. if they've got fire behind something, they'll pull it over, you know. That makes sense. Well, yeah, they only have one priority, you know, and they're not worried about salvaging furniture, so. Well, we do train for them to do as little damage as possible. Even whenever you're dragging the hoses through there or you run into something on accident because you can't see. Yeah. I mean, there's no visibility whatsoever. They could have knocked it over on accident or it could have been from the struggle that she had mm-hmm. with the person that killed her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's a few scenarios that could have led to that being knocked over. That makes sense. So what effect does everything that's involved in a fire have on a human body? Explain what happens with the muscles contracting and all that. Yeah, they'll tighten up. A lot of times when we find victims in a house fire, they'll be in what we call a pugilistic stance. The arms will come up. The hands will come up. It's almost like a fist. It's kind of weird. It almost looks like a boxer. It's what we call a pugilistic stance. Okay. So once those muscles start cooking, they'll start contracting. And so that's when those arms tend to do that. Legs will kind of pull up into almost a fetal position. Okay. Another reason that I think this is not premeditated, I think it's just something that happened. People, when they do something like this, they get to thinking, hey, I just burn everything up and get rid of it. But it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And actually, we know that this fire, I mean, it was semi-successful, but not really, because although we don't know what specific evidence was collected, we know that they sent evidence for forensic testing. Right. So that tells me they found enough stuff in that house to where they thought, hey, we might find the killer's DNA here. So in your experience, is there one gender or the other that tends to set fires more often than the other? Yeah, most of the time, whenever there's a fire set, it's usually a male, but that doesn't say that women won't do it. Sure. You go and look at the numbers, most of the time they'll say that when women do it, it's usually out of revenge. Like a, a scorned girlfriend might burn a truck or clothes or his favorite guitar or guns or, you know, something along those lines just to get back at him. Okay, but something targeted. Yeah. Yeah, it would be targeted on a female side, you know. And you can still have revenge burns from men. Guys are just as liable to do it as women do, but on average, it's guys that do it more than girls. Okay. Do you go either way in terms of male, female, in terms of which gender was the perpetrator in Linda's case? I can go either way with it. Yeah, me too. Well, Alan, we've had a really thorough discussion. You taught me so much today, which is what I was anticipating and really looking forward to. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to join me and putting forth your time to look through photos and reports and just help us out on Linda's case. I really appreciate it. And I know George does, and I know Linda's family does as well. Not a problem. Anything I can do to help, it's really interesting. Same. It helps me learn more about my job, too, whenever I see stuff like this. Yes, I always learn so much through each investigation. So I teach, too, so 
it helps me more of what to tell my students to look for because each one of these cases is different. Yes. It might be something that they could run into later on. You know, if they become an arson investigator or even just a firefighter, it might be something that they can think back and say, hey, you know what, I learned this from that. Well, plus having real world cases to talk about in class, I know that helps me as an instructor and it definitely helped when I was a student. So me too. I agree. I'm glad that we can contribute a little bit like that. I agree. Well, wonderful. Well, welcome to the team, by the way, because you're stuck with us. (laughs) Well, thanks. (laughs) All right, Alan, take care. Have a wonderful weekend. And I know that we'll be in touch soon. All right, thanks. All right. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. Several weeks later, George, Alan, and I got on another call to discuss some more topics that we'd uncovered. The three of us, along with our other team members, have been going back and forth on Linda's case for several months now, so I wanted to come back on and discuss a few of those things. Alan is here again, our arson expert, and we greatly appreciate his insight. (laughs) But something that we kind of realized is that It doesn't appear there was any accelerant poured on Linda's body specifically. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah. There would have been a lot more skin damage than what there was. I don't believe they poured any at all on her. You can look at the body and tell that there was not any accelerant actually poured on her in this fire. Which to me indicates that they weren't worried about investigators uncovering the cause of death. Like, that's very obvious. She was stabbed to death. Yeah. So that led me to think, okay, so what's the purpose of this fire? What were your thoughts? The only thing that I can think of, it would be just to try to cover their tracks. If they left any DNA evidence or anything in there, it'd just be something to cover them during the investigation to kind of throw the police off. That's the only thing that would make sense in that situation. That was kind of my thinking, too. George, what was yours? What was your initial process. I think they were trying to cover up any evidence that they could have potentially left that would lead back to them, you know, hairs, fingerprints, other DNA type stuff. So I think that's what they were doing. They were trying to cover their own tracks, which also indicates to me that in their mind, believe there could be significant evidence of them left in the house, meaning they had been in the house for a while or they had been in the house previous to this. And so I think that's what they were doing. Yeah, I was thinking, say the house hadn't been set on fire and like the killer's fingerprints were found on a doorknob or something. If it's someone known to Linda, that's probably explainable. But I was thinking, okay, so they went above and beyond. Like they're probably not just getting rid of fingerprints. And I'm with you. I'm thinking it was something more severe, like DNA wise, forensic wise. Like Jeff was saying, he believes that the killer sliced themselves open, at least their hand. Or Linda could have injured her killer as well because Jeff thinks that she armed herself. And so my top thinking is that this killer was bleeding and couldn't clean it up. Yeah, really like your theory. This person was potentially bleeding or doing something that was emitting DNA at the crime scene 
because it is kind of a rash thing. You don't see fire. Alan, you can speak to this more than I. There's a lot of murder scenes where fire's not involved. Right. So, Alan, what are your thoughts on that? I would think there might be like DNA under her fingernails from whoever done that. I'd have to go back and, and read through that autopsy report better and see if they check for that. They did. And anytime somebody sets a fire in a situation like this, they're trying to cover something up. So I feel there was something here that they left behind that they couldn't get cleaned up. So the fastest and easiest way to do it is just set the place on fire. I was going to say, just to clarify, they did scrape and clip her fingernails Yeah. at autopsy. We know that forensic evidence was found. We don't know the nature of it or from where, yeah. but her fingernails may have been the source of that. And that's based on early emails from the original detective to the family. It sounds like they found forensic evidence of the killer, but we don't have the details on, like I said, where in the house or what the circumstances were that they found that. Right. And that also tells me the fire wasn't completely successful, right? Right. In achieving that goal of removing all forensic evidence. I wondered during the struggle if the fire might have got started that way instead of them intentionally starting the fire. There could have been like candles or something in the house that got knocked over, set some curtains on fire or something, and it spread that way, which is very plausible. Curtains are going to go up quick. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting part of it is the fact that she was found nude. And Alan, that kind of leads into a great question that Jennifer had. In your experience, have you ever dealt with a situation where there was an arson was set, there was a victim, and the victim was nude? Are you aware of that situation? Well, not like hers. Most of the time, whenever we find a body in a structure fire like that, they're not going to have any clothes on because they've been burned off. However, when you roll the body over, the clothes that didn't burn up would be underneath them. So... But like she was, no, that's not common. That is so interesting because Jeff said the same thing. He has never worked on a case of a stabbing where the victim was found completely nude. And so you're the second one in a different area of expertise saying the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you got to look at the time frame, too. It's early morning, what, three or four o'clock that the fire gets called in. Mm -hmm. I mean, she might have been one of the people that slept in the nude. So I've never seen it. I'm not saying that nobody else has, sure, but me personally, no, I haven't seen that many. The point is, it's pretty rare. Yes, very. And I think her manner of dress or lack of dress is probably a big clue in one way or another. We're just trying to figure it out exactly what it means. Yeah, I think so, too. Well, Melissa, who you've helped a lot um, on her and Justin's case in West Virginia, she had the idea that maybe Linda was taking like a late night shower and got surprised in the shower or coming out of the shower. And maybe that's why she didn't have clothing on. That's possible. I was like, oh, that's a pretty valid theory. I don't think I would have thought of that. This is why I love crowdsourcing. <laughs> yeah. But that was a good idea. Yep. You just never know what somebody's habits are and what they do. I mean, all of us are different. Something else that keeps bothering me is Linda's car. And I know we went over this before, but I want to revisit this topic because... I've been studying the pictures of her car, and then for this episode, I was listening again to my interview with my father-in-law, who has a lot of experience. He was on the volunteer firefighter force in Wisconsin for over 20 years, and he went through a lot of training on investigations and arson and stuff like that. And when he was looking at the pictures of the car, he pointed out that the whole interior is just gone, yeah, essentially gutted by fire. 
but the exterior doesn't look that damaged. And he also felt like the carport would have shown more damage if the radiant heat from the house and the carport is what started the interior of the car on fire. And so I keep going back and forth between his analysis and yours. And then my other thing that we'll get into is in reading the 911 calls again, the neighbor said he went and kicked open the back door, which is right by her car. And I'm just wondering in my mind, like, how was he able to get past the car and that heat to get to the door? I see where you're going with it. I understand that. And that's another reason I kind of feel like it was just radiant heat that caused the car fire. So I still feel like the car wasn't on fire and he went around there and that's when he kicked the door open. That would have given that fire another ventilation point. So what happens is, is a heat in a doorway like that, you'll have heat come out the top, it'll be exiting out, and then you'll have an influx of fresh air coming in underneath it. Mm -hmm. So you have what's called a thermal layer right there where the two are meeting. So that fire is going to travel to where it's pulling oxygen in at, and it's also going out. So I feel like once he kicked that door open, and he saw all this smoke just start rushing out at him, and he backed out and couldn't go in that way. That just opened that up and allowed that fire to come out. And it reports there from the fire department, it says when they arrived on scene, it was fully involved, mm -hmm. which is a term that we use, and there was fire coming out every window. Yeah. So that also tells me that that heat was coming out through there. And if you look at that fire report, they went into what's called a defensive mode. Once they seen that it was fully involved, and you'll see in that fire report, it says A side, B side, D side, yes. C side. So what that means is A would be the very front of the house where the trucks pull up at. Okay. And then going to your left around clockwise around the house, B would be the left-hand side, C would be the very back, and D would be the right-hand side. Gotcha. Once they opened that hose up and started flowing water, I'm sure that's what kept most of the damage down on the carport and stuff on that side. Okay. I also just realized something. <laughs> it's possible the car didn't have any fire damage until the back door was kicked open, possibly? Right. That's what I'm thinking. If she had a window partially cracked, that heat would have got in through the window and set the interior of the car on fire. So... The most flammable part of that car, other than the fuel tank, is the interior of the car because it's like cloth and fabric sure. and foam and carpet. Mm -hmm. So it's going to light up fairly quick. Yeah. Even through like the glass, the radiant heat that comes through that glass can be enough to ignite that interior part. If you're setting a fire in the house, eventually it's going to be noticeable to the neighbors, obviously. Right. But if you set the car on fire... If I'm sitting in my house right now and the inside of my neighbor's house across the street is on fire right now, I can't really tell that. But if I look out in their driveway and their car's on fire, it's going to be very noticeable at 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So it probably wouldn't make sense unless they had to set it on fire because there was some evidence in the car. So that makes a lot of sense to me that they probably didn't set the car on fire. Yeah, that was my only thought is like maybe their DNA or forensic evidence was in the car and they knew it. But now that I'm talking through it with you guys, I don't know how the neighbor could have got past the car to kick open the back door if the car is already engulfed. Well, if it was engulfed, there's no way he could have. That makes total sense. That's why I think he kicked the door in. That created a draft point right there and it pulled the fire to that location. That's what got it on fire. I think that probably makes most sense. Yep. 
So in one of the arson reports, Alan, it mentions the windows of the house blowing out. In an arson like this, what causes the windows to shatter or break outwards or blow out, as was mentioned? That's a good question. And it's not just in an arson fire, but it's in any fire. Sure, right. So if it builds up enough heat in there, what will happen is the windows will get hot enough that they will expand and they're inside that frame. And if it's a tempered type glass, it will just bust and break out. So that being said, one of the things that we teach firefighters when they get on scene is if the windows are broken out, we look at the glass to see if the glass is laying on the outside of the building or if it's laying on the inside. If it's laying on the outside, we're pretty confident that the fire caused it to break and fall out. If the glass is broken out and it's falling on the inside, that's a good indicator that somebody broke it out from the outside. There is another phenomenon that happens when glass gets hot. The firefighters hit that glass with the water, and you'll get a phenomenon called crazing. It looks like little spider webs all in it, Mm -hmm. and that's called crazing. It's just that cool water hitting that hot glass, and it causes it to fracture. But if it's laying out on the outside on the ground, most likely it was caused by the heat buildup and caused it to fracture and and fall out. Was your impression that the front door was possibly open? It's hard to tell for me on their wording. Me too. And that's one of the questions that I've got is, was that door open? Was the fire coming out that door? It sounds to me like... It probably was, or some of the windows were open on the front. Something was open up there that was letting that fire get air and work its way towards that front like that. Mm-hmm. Something give it some air somewhere. So it kind of makes me wonder if that front door was open. It had to have been getting some air from somewhere. Right. One of the things a fire has to have to burn is oxygen. Yeah. That's what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, they, they think, well, I'm going to shut all these windows and doors up so that it'll burn everything up, but nobody will see it. And usually it'll burn itself out because it just doesn't have enough oxygen. So in Linda's case, then your opinion is that either a window must have been open or they left the front door open? Well, she already said that there was flames coming out of the front of the house, out of the window. Yes. Either they blew out or... Something was open up there to cause that fire to come to that direction. Right. I'm so curious as to whether the person fled on foot or had a vehicle nearby. Yeah. To me, it seems not premeditated at all, which would indicate to me they drove a vehicle into her yard. But then you go out the front door, you got to run around the side of the house to get in your vehicle and get out of there. You know, three, four in the morning, probably no one's going to see you, but it's still risky. Our conversation eventually transitioned to Linda's injuries. I think we can all agree that this person, whoever did this, is going to be covered in blood. For sure. Yeah. They probably injured themselves and they've got blood on their clothing. They have to have. I agree. I'll tell you what's weird, though. If the person cut themselves, I'm surprised that they didn't just douse her and the, you know, like her and the room. Because obviously she, this person bled on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They cut themselves. So... But, you know, when you're in a panic and you're thinking clearly to a degree, like, I've got to get this place burned up, but maybe you're not thinking to the degree of, I need to get her and all this stuff in the room burn up. You're just assuming that it's going to go up with the rest of the house. Yeah. Well, and that's what I was getting at earlier. A lot of arsonists, especially people that just do something at the spur of the moment deal, they don't know a whole lot about what they're doing. Yeah. Whoever was attempting to remove themselves or remove their forensics from that house failed. I mean, that's evidence. There's even a photo of the bathroom door and the brass door 
knob is still fully intact. It's not even black or anything. So who knows what was on that doorknob? So yeah. <laughs> One of the things was whoever did this was a real idiot. They didn't know what they were doing. Yep. But obviously that this was just a spur of the moment. Hey, I'm going to burn this and get out of here. Yep. You know. And like we already discussed, the top reason that someone would go to that trouble is to try to remove evidence of themselves. Yeah, it's cover up. Well, me and George are going to be up there in a couple of weeks. So if you think of anything specific that you want us to look into while we're there. Yeah. Just say the word. Yeah, I will. No problem. Okay. Well, in the meantime, thank you guys for giving up an hour of your Sunday night. Not a problem. And Easter. And uh, it's always good to brainstorm with you. And I just appreciate all the ideas. And we're just going to keep moving forward. So I hope whoever thought they could get away with murdering Linda Malcolm is getting a little nervous. Agreed. Agreed. 100%. All right. Thank you, guys. We'll talk soon. All right. All right. See y'all. Alan had already beyond proved himself as a valuable member of our team. He will be joining us for a live Zoom on Tuesday, April 25th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. Listeners can join the discussion and ask Alan anything they want. The more discussion, the better. For listeners in the Port Orchard area, George and I will be in town the last weekend of April, along with four of Linda's siblings. We will be hosting a couple of meet and greet events. These are open to the public, and we encourage anyone in the local area to come out and connect with us in person. Please visit our Facebook group, Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm, for more information on dates, times, and locations for these events. Next time on Break the Case. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm the brother of Kathy Thomas, who together with her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, were the first two victims in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders. What has you and your family's experience been through the years with law enforcement on your sister's case? I would say somewhere between terrible and you've got to be kidding. The two of you and your allies bring a lot to the table. If an investigator can see it moving past pride and institutional concerns and just say, you know, I might want to hear these people out because they might be able to tell me something that could help me move this case forward. Exactly. (laughs) And plus, people reach out to us. I know you've had the same experience. People reach out to us that don't want to talk to law enforcement. If you don't kick up a fuss and if you don't keep asking questions and calling your investigator and talking to the media, nothing happens. Trust me, a lot of what I've done over the last 14 years has been to keep kicking up a fuss. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leishan Kranick, Andy Crow, and Kristen Kretzler with support from Lisa Tannis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Subscribe to Break the Case on iHeartRadio, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.